gun shy. Don't close your eyes and your ears. National lights up. We will set a bonfire. And hungry kids. There are so many families out there that do struggle. Welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News. I'm Benedict Collins. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Jessica Much Mackay. Hey guys, so let's have a, what, are, what were our highlights of the week? Highlights of the week, I'll kick us off, shall I? Um, the peak for me this week um, was the uh, ministerial and MP um, expenses statements that we received. And, you know, we go through them looking for anything juicy. And I came up with this little beauty uh, from the um, uh, broadcasting minister, Chris Farfoy. We've got on his credit card his statement for his uh, premium content uh, subscription to the New Zealand Herald. So... A good minister there, supporting local uh, paid content. Just uh, hoping that he'll uh, get the Newsroom Pro subscription on there next month. It's so much more time than it used to be, eh? Like, that's that's one of the juiciest bits we could find, and it used to be fabulous when it first came out. Yes. Now it's a little no, bit no more No porn tame. movies on there? Yeah. No, the, no. The, the, oh, my gosh. Did you just say porn in the podcast? <laughs> I think that's allowed. This premium allowed. content comes to you free of charge. Yes. No, this okay. one was only $10 move, a month. Move, moving on, <laughs> um, my peak this week, which is, I guess, a... a a bit of a peak and a bit of a pitch is um, the flower exchange between Winston Peters and um, Paula Bennett. Ooh. It gave me um, quite great joy that she sent him a bunch of flowers and then he responded saying that they looked as though she scrounged them from the garden. <laughs> um, from the local park. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, we don't like um, to see our our foreign minister and deputy prime minister um, ill, but uh, the image of him sitting in a hospital bed or sitting recovering at home and scheming um, about tweets and the way he's going to respond to things does give me joy, and we definitely miss him around here. So um, that that will be the pit, the peak for me this week. I wonder what what she'd written on the card on the on the card with the flowers. Yeah, something qu- yeah. like a bit pithy, I think. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and for me. Um, one of the highlights of the week was um, Louise Upston, uh, National MP, holding um, uh, the government to account over continuing to um, hit beneficiaries, the tiny number of beneficiaries who fail a drugs test when they get referred to a job that requires a drug, drug test, holding them to account in Parliament. Um, she got it out of uh, Grant Robertson yesterday. Um, so, so basically we had about 40,000 people, um, beneficiaries were sent off for jobs that required a drug test just over 100 failed and 72 were sanctioned. Yesterday, Louise Upston got it out of Grant Robertson um, that 16 children and nine families are being hit by these um, sanctions. And of course, as she um, has repeatedly pointed out the hypocrisy here, it wasn't that long ago that Labour was saying that children you know, who are hit with these sanctions where the parents' benefit gets, you know, they get, they get almost nothing now. And when they get hit with a sanction, they lose half their benefit, so they have half of nothing. Um, uh, you know, Labor was warning in opposition these children would be um, subject to severe damage. Um, so, 16 children in that situation right now. So, she did a good job there, um, you know, holding them to account. The Greens, who don't like the policy, not prepared to challenge the government in the House. Interesting. You know, wouldn't eh? ask the Prime Minister a question, wouldn't ask Carmel Cepoloni a question about this policy that they hate. So, their silence is pretty interesting. One thing I really liked um, one of the questions that. Um, Louise Upston put to Carmel Cepoloni on Wednesday, which she said, well, do you have an ex- expectation that your staff turn up to work um, free from the influence of drugs? And Carmel Cepoloni got up and said, well, yes, I do. 
but the interesting thing is, is here, there's no testing regime for the minister's staff, is there? Or the, or the ministers themselves, or the prime minister? Hey, and there is definitely no sanctions for them either. Um, so, you know, a, your beneficiaries held to a, you know, much higher standards and, and much tougher standards um, than the ministers themselves and their staff. So an interesting thing, I thought. Yeah. And mm. like we said last week, when you're dealing with such small numbers, 16, why bother? Um, my pit this week... Um, is actually probably a pit for Associate Transport Minister Julianne Genta. She's had a bit of a rough couple of weeks. I think she's, you know, with the, the sort of release the letter, um, a demand on her, and then we saw her a little bit more last week. Anyway, the latest um, the latest uh, issue challenging the Minister is the Treasury advice that uh, she received regarding the electric vehicle scheme that the government's proposing, which would basically give discounts to those cleaner, greener cars and hit um, those heavy gas-guzzling vehicles with a bit of a fee. Um, and the Treasury um, advice to the Minister was that basically this scheme um, would have um, no significant impact on emissions. Um, it says here that um, New Zealand's total emissions each year is around 81 million tonnes, uh, and that this scheme would only reduce those emissions by 2 million tonnes, just under 2 million tonnes, over 20 years. So. Uh, not that uh, significant in terms of the impacts there. The Minister obviously though defending um, her decision to continue on pointing to the likes of the Productivity Commission and others are uh, saying that they actually back the idea and saying Treasury is out of step. And pointing to other countries eh, and saying hey it's worked quite well yes. over there was part now, of her defence. But the interesting thing with that is we asked the Minister so what numbers do those other countries have those other countries been seeing in terms of their emissions reductions and she couldn't put a figure on it. Um, and I think if you're going to use that as your defence, then you should probably know the numbers behind that. You should have them ready and waiting in your sort of ammo there. Um, so <laughs> a little bit of homework. Fire. Yes, a little bit of homework to be done still there for the minister. Um, mine this week is a bit of a passion, a bit of a peak. Um, Claire Curran is off, so um, a lot of people here will be sad to see her go in her Labour camp. But what it does do is open up um, a seat for more competition for us, which is quite exciting come election year. Um, we'll be seeing some a bit of competition down in Dunedin going on there. But, you know, former broadcasting minister had a bit to do with us and obviously um, was in the media quite a lot about a year ago after over some meetings. So um, I think... It'll. It, it's one of those. She's one of those people who've been around here in politics for a long time and has a lot of of mates in the caucus still. And it was really interesting the day that she announced that she wouldn't be standing again at the next election. Um, she was walking over the bridge up towards the black and white tiles where all mm. the reporters are allowed to sort of pick off ministers or ask them questions and stuff. And instead of coming across where you know, numerous media outlets were wanting to talk to her, she um, uh, took a sharp left turn and went down a corridor where she could avoid the media. So kind of yeah, interesting way to. To bow out. She's probably had enough of us yeah. by now, I would imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, hey, one quite fun thing that happened um, this week, a little bit of an inside story here. We um, Yesterday I was off covering, we're going to have a look at the track later on, but I was covering the government's um, free lunches in schools programme, and the school in Rotorua that we went to um, was almost <clears throat> a little bit prison-esque in a way that it had big gates all around the school. And they only had one little entrance, and they had this young guy, he's, I don't know, maybe early 20s, a private security guard, <clears throat> and he had a list of paper with people's approved people's names on it. And if your name wasn't on that list, you were not coming in. And it was fantastic, because we had people there from the um, Department of Prime Minister, you had, like I think, Ministry of Health officials, you had 
people on the board of trustees at the school and this guy was like nah nah i need to see your your invite yeah and, the, <laughs> and he, yeah he was doing this fantastic job of keeping all these officials Good out on him. and somehow yeah. we just walked straight at him and said one news and he let us straight through so it was great well <laughs> yeah. there's this big queue of you know very highly ranked important officials being yeah. kept out by this guy it was yeah it was, well processes, it was processes and you got yes. to get your name on that list <laughs> yeah 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 mm. Well, shall we, one of the big things this week was um, looking at, well, that I did this week was looking at um, the politics around um, the gun law changes. Shall we have a look at my track on that that played? It was a second track I did this week um, on the Wednesday night. It's not often Parliament unites, but it did on the first round of changes to our gun laws after the Christchurch attack. But phase two isn't quite so simple. And the message to National, don't play politics. Don't be on the wrong side of history on this one. Don't close your eyes and your ears. We think it's really sad, actually. You know, this is something that was happening for the benefit of all New Zealanders. This comes after One News revealed a draft copy of the legislation leaked to the opposition. National didn't like it and told us they're unlikely to back it. What happened to the unity that you showed at the beginning of this process? Well, we've been there because that bill stacked up. It was the right thing to do. Sadly, though, the government hasn't implemented the buyback uh, reforms at all well. It's a fiasco. He reckons the government's plans are lopsided. That seems to be aimed at good law-abiding people rather than the crims, the gangs and the I'm really disappointed. I had hoped that we would have uh, a joining together of the parliament again. But some gun clubs are welcoming the debate. And there's a shooting community out there that has no representation whatsoever, or that's the way they've felt since March. Um, there's an election next year, and I can assure you that the shooting community is organising. National are very wise to be saying these things. National is accused of echoing the message from the gun lobby. And we believe it's a, an overreaction by government, once again on the law-abiding owners. For Simon Bridges just to try and make political capital by agreeing with our extremist gun lobby. There's no politics. This gun legislation is a hot topic. The Police Association says it's nervous all of this politics will skew the debate, like we've seen in the US. The events of Christchurch have really galvanised us into action. Even without national support, the government is on track to do that. So this story all came um, actually on the Tuesday where um, National Party were leaked um, the draft legislation for the Gun um, gun Act and they and they gave it to us um, to, to pick through and to read. And I think uh, as part of that we were able to reveal quite a few things that are set to become um, set to become law if the government gets its way, if it goes through cabinet, goes through select committee, um, is part of the second tranche of the changes to the gun laws and it's around tougher penalties and sanctions, it's also around um, medical professionals being able to hand over information to police if if they think that the person who, who um, they are, their patient they are seeing isn't fit to hold a licence. And as part of that as well, um, when I was interviewing their police spokesperson, Brett Hudson, he was saying that, look, um, you know, I don't like the second tranche of it. Um, it doesn't sit comfortably with me and I will definitely be trying to convince the rest of my caucus when the time comes not to support it either. Then, the next day, that's when this story came out, where you had people like the Police Association and some of the gun control groups saying, hang on a second, we really shouldn't be making this political, we should be keeping it united like 
like we did right at the beginning. And it does seem, I mean, we were all there after the March 15 attacks when, attack I should say, when um, the government came out and, and everyone except for the ACT Party seemed to be like, right, let's do this and let's get this going and let's not play politics with this. And now we're getting into this nitty gritty of the legislation and, and, and things have changed. And I think that's the nature of politics and maybe we were a little bit... Um, little bit naive to think it would be quite so smooth. Yeah, I I would probably um, come out and um, uh, and bat for for the Nats on this one. I think you know we saw that sort of um, uni unity that we needed to see in the first stage of the um, gun buyback or the the sort of gun reforms, um, and so that was basically in terms of getting rid of those high powered um, military semi automatics, um, you know, um, off off the streets and and sort of banning them and prohibiting those. I think that was a sort of important um, part to be unified on. I think now. Now that we're getting into things like the costs of um, the buyback scheme and how much they'll be offering for um, for firearms and so on, those sort of minute details, and we're talking about tougher laws here and there. I think it's okay for the National Party to now be sort of switching more into their own sort of unique position on this, and, and if they want to sort of take that sort of opposition line, then, um, you know, this is politics and this is Parliament and this is where these things can be debated, and there is a voice, and we saw that in your story, um, of... of you know, a part of the community who aren't that happy with um, some of the changes that the government is bringing in, and so someone, um, you know, has to um, uh, give give their voice um, some some sort of um, uh, backing here in Parliament, or you know, be the voice for them here in Parliament. And obviously, the National Party sort of, when I was speaking with Brett Hudson, was saying, you know, that they haven't been um, uh, influenced or lobbied, um, you know, by those people, but um, that you know they're raising legitimate concerns. Yeah. That they think they that they have. When, yeah. When are we expecting to see these changes back before, or, or this this like the second tranche of legislation? Uh, has come, got a cabinet first, right. but it should be by the end of the year that we'll start debating and start we'll start going through the select committee process. And I just I and I hear what you're saying about that as well. But I do think with this one, w- there was such such a okay. We've got to crack down on our laws. It's not fit for purpose. And even with the buyback scheme. Um, national support uh, supported it and then um, now coming out and saying that it's not working it's a fiasco they're not getting what they need and things like that and I get it you're absolutely right it is opposition and it is politics and that's exactly what they're there to do it's to hold the government to account but you do think that this um, the the reason that we are doing it and the reason that it's changing has perhaps been a bit forgotten in all of this, um, that we've now just moved on to business as usual and back to the back to the grind of politics, I guess. Yeah, I find it quite interesting that the proposal around having doctors informing police if they have concerns about clients who may own firearms. Like, I wouldn't have even thought and I don't, I don't know because I don't own a gun, but I wouldn't have thought necessarily your doctor would even know if you were a firearms owner. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe it's obvious in some rural communities and stuff like yeah, that. But I, I, and I didn't realise they would even know. But I also guess, and and there's the whole aspect of um, patient doctor confidentiality yeah. as mm. well, which is a big issue. But you do get to a point where if you feel like someone is um, is unwell and could harm 
others. others. Mm. I, I guess harming, but the, the fact is it's not just others, it's yourself as well, and that's where it starts to get complicated in that relationship. Then do you have a duty of care to the public that you know doctors are leaders in to say something to police, or is that bond of patient um, doctor privilege far too sacred and and they shouldn't be allowed to do that? And I put that to the minister. I said, you know, look, are you comfortable with this? And he was like, yes, because it's about making communities safer. And when you say it like that, you think, well, yeah, he's right. It is that. But for us, we, you know, I know when I visit the doctor. Um, you've, I'm very open and free and frank about the way that I'm feeling about things and you would never, ex- you know, with that absolute trust in, in what you're saying to them and you just would, you know, to, to break that, um, even if it is in exceptional circumstances, does seem like, it, I'm not sure how well that sits mm. with me. And will we see people withhold more of that information or, or you know they won't be they won't be so comfortable to um to um uh, digress those things um, so exactly so how they yeah. with yeah. their doctors mm. if we and these are all things that will no doubt be robustly discussed during the select committee phase yeah, on yeah. This. we've just brought it forward a little bit which is quite nice <laughs> it will be interesting though because we need to know how all of that's going to work and, and when i and obviously we you know the minister you know we haven't got that level of detail around the processes yeah. to do with those things so it would be good to nut those things out once we get to that stage yeah mm. hey, another um fascinating story i thought this week that we ran was um a story on national after they made um, some announcements about policies that they're looking to take to the next election let's have a look at this Simon Bridges opting for a more casual look today, hoping to make economic gibberish more palatable to Kiwi voters. They perhaps see it as pie uh, in the sky. GDP schmidp. National's position on retirement clear, reconfirming it'll raise the age of superannuation from 65 to 67 in around 20 years' time. Over time it would save us around $4 billion a year and as I say makes that superannuation more sustainable. I've been very clear while I am Prime Minister or while I lead uh, any form of government I will not increase the retirement age. National also cracking down on immigrants receiving super, raising the eligibility bar from 10 years residency to 20. I think it's just the right thing to do, I think it's a fair go taking a leaf from the New Zealand First policy book. These kind of magpie antics, we're going to see quite a few of them going up towards the next election. As for next year's election, voters can expect more tailored tax cuts, with National promising a particular focus on families. The government's piled on taxes, they're pulling in a lot of money, they're not even spending it. They can't keep promising tax cuts and then also promising to spend more money. New Zealanders understand that. You've got to make it work on both sides of the ledger. But a balancing act may be what's required as National considers lowering the company tax rate and tax relief for small businesses, a promise to to slash 100 regulations in their first six months. We're being really clear, we will set a bonfire on regulations. National hoping to stand out with voters come 2020. 
So a big um, policy discussion document here from the National Party and obviously leading that was the discussion around superannuation, basically just reaffirming what Bill English um, ran with at um, the last election, um, that the Nats would actually um, raise that super age to 67. Um, granted, in about 20 years' time, you know, Simon Bridges is very clear he didn't want people who are, say, 55 to be sitting there thinking, oh gosh, I thought I was almost there and now the goalpost has been shifted even further away from me. So he, they have allowed themselves that wriggle room. You could argue that also leaves the door for them to do a, a backtrack if, if, you know, if, if um, you know, it warrants in, say, 10 years' time. Well, it's going to be someone else's problem. Yeah, when someone it, else's yeah. problem. And these guys right? will be long gone, the ones who made the promises at the moment. Um, but, yeah, obviously an interesting debate with the Prime Minister still maintaining it wouldn't happen under her watch. And we did a poll on this um, a little while ago and asked people about where they want um, the age to stay. And it just shows how um, fraught it is politically for people and how people don't like the idea of it What were those numbers up. again in the poll? Um, I've actually forgotten what the exact numbers were. But most people wanted them to, from memory, most people wanted it to remain at 65 and that had solidified. Yeah, so that was yeah. sort of the overall takeaway. But um, I should have looked those up before I came and I'm sorry that I did not. But I think that um, it just shows that, and I mean, I think us in our 30s-ish, um, ish Benedict, um, that, <laughs> um, I mean, I think we pretty shame. much, yeah, we pretty much accept that I think for us, the age is going to go up because you know well, that's where it's interesting you say that because I've I've worked with someone this week who was saying they've voted national all their lives and mm. they were forty five and they've been doing the calculations in their head and figure they'll be like the first among the first people to be hit yeah. with it going up to um, sixty seven yeah and they said well I'm not sure that I can vote national at next year's really? election yeah. if they're going to be doing this. And, and it's a <coughs> and the, definite vote And the person winner. was saying to me they were in that generation that was the first to get hit with um, yep. student loans yep. you know, for, for going to uni. Now they're going to get hit at the other end as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was, it was quite interesting. I mm. must admit, I'm so, I'm sort of on the fence on that one. I know that it's you know it, 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 you know Simon Bridges has said it'll save around four billion dollars each year, um, but you know just gosh, work and life is just so full on already. I think everyone knows that you know we were working longer hours, we're working harder for less. Everything costs a lot more, and and these guys want us to to sort of keep doing that for an extra two years. And economically, it's it's a no. -brainer. Of course we can't, you know, of course we have to move the age up, of course the number of wor working pool is less, but it's what we want to spend our money on and where we choose to prioritise. And if we want people to say, right, you pay your taxes and we'll help you out when you get to 65, if that's the Kiwi way of life. Mm. So I just think it's this is going. This issue is going to be so fun um, next year in election year. And I think, I don't think it's just like that person you know, I think there are lots of people out there that this is something that they go... Oh, okay, mm. that's going to sway how I'm feeling about it. Yeah. Interesting too to see them take a leaf out of um, the New Zealand First Policy book, as I mentioned in that story, and sort of wanting Magpie to, uh, antics, <laughs> I think, was uh, Shane, Shane Jones', Jones. expression. Yeah, yep. See, even though Winston Peters isn't here to de deliver those lines, he still has Shane Jones yeah. there to drive it home for the, for the, for the party. I quite like GDP Schmidty P as well. Yes, from, yeah. Um, good Simon Bridges, Simon I enjoyed. He's had some tongue twisters the last few weeks, eh? For someone who gets some teased, good ones, though, eh? yeah, teased about his accent and struggles every now and then to get. He's been nailing those 
those tongue twisting light much better than I could be just then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been interesting, and mm. I guess now we can go from. Well, speaking, yeah, of priorities in terms of how yeah. um, people want to spend their money, the government this week announcing a forty-five million dollar plan to start rolling out a pilot project to put free schools and lunches. Let's have a look at this. Free schools. Free schools. Free and lunches and schools. <laughs> <laughs> chowing down with the Prime Minister. I like that she's trying to help people and that don't have enough money to buy food. The government launching an ambitious plan to feed children across the country. One in five families in New Zealand don't have what they need to be able to provide quality kai on the table every day. And we know we need to fix that. We know that well-fed children prosper, their health is better, obesity levels are down, they're better involved in educational outcome is improved. So on every level, in my view, it's the right thing to do. A prototype of the school lunch programme will begin across Rotorua in Hawke's Bay in Term 1 next year, before moving to Otago Southland in Term 2. But the government still has to figure out the logistics of how it's going to go about feeding tens of thousands of kids. Some schools, for instance, may, if they have the facilities, um, choose to produce the lunches uh, within their own school, creating employment as a result of doing that. Other schools may wish, for instance, to partner with a local bakery. It will grow to 120 schools by 2021, with the government putting aside $45 million to get it rolling. Carl Vasso knows about hungry kids. He sees them every day. The average income of, of families in our community is around $30,000. But as for how far today's announcement will go... No, I don't think it's enough because there are so many families out there that do struggle, uh, struggle to make ends meet, and that's no fault of the children's. Those on the front line know that struggle all too well. We've got 100 early childhoods waiting and 38 schools waiting. So the need is so big that no one organisation can do it all. National calling it a well-intentioned but flawed plan. If they gave this money to existing partners, we could reach tens of thousands of more children. There's 74 other actions inside the strategy and every single government department has a role to play in this. And the government's says it's just getting started. One of the things I found really interesting um, about this was asking the Prime Minister yesterday about the logistics here. Um, how, how do you go about delivering, setting up these schemes to feed tens upon tens of thousands of kids, eventually, you know, maybe more hundreds of thousands of kids? Um, and it was, yeah, I thought her answer was pretty interesting, saying you know, some schools might, you know, have the facilities to start doing doing it themselves. Others might want to, um, you know, form relationships with local bakeries or pr providers to bring those lunches in. And also, she was um, she said a couple of times in, the, in um, the media yesterday, not saying how much they're um, putting or what a healthy school lunch is per child. Not giving you that dollar figure because saying, hey, look, a lot of schools are going to have to go into commercial contracts here. So that, trying to keep that sort of information, you know, and for justifiable reasons um, around what that is. And I did ask her, you know, what is a healthy lunch? Um, you know, how do, how do you qualify that? Um, but she didn't have sort of information to hand on that. So it'll be interesting to see how this sort of rolls out this pilot scheme. I just think to me, this whole thing um, raises so many complex questions because you have 
um, you know, how are, how are you going to decide what kids get if they don't like something? Um, you know, if they don't want to eat vegetables, do they have to have the salad sandwich? If um, you've got You're kids who right are allergic... damn right they do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you've got um, kids who are allergic to stuff, how do you deal with that? Gluten-free Glu- kids yeah. and vegetarian kids, yeah. And so yeah. for me, that's, that's one um, aspect of it. Like, just the pure logistics of it fascinates me. What I like about the scheme is that I think um, rather than having it optional for kids, like, let you know, for for a lot of um, families, it's it's embarrassing to have to go and ask for help and ask for support. But these are adults who are doing that, and and that's life. And adults can deal with embarrassment and deal with having to queue up and do it. For kids, being having to go to a school and um, queue up to get your lunch because your parents can't afford to have have that that day, I that doesn't sit well with me. I I would find that um, really hard. And I think that the fact that you can do it per school, um, even if it means that there are some kids who are getting it who don't need it, to me that that fits more comfortably with me. Yeah, and that's what the likes of kid. Kids can would say about the breakfast in schools is that you know a lot, and, and, and we've heard it from principals as well is that a lot of the kids who were going to these breakfasts were um, embarrassed, like you mentioned, because you know that it kind of just pinpointed them as being the ones who couldn't afford or who didn't have any breakfast that morning. And the same goes with the kids can jackets. You know, if you were wearing the kids can jacket and it had their label all on, mm. and people knew where you got that from. And I wonder if there's a system. So let's say there are, um, you know, there's. Five or ten percent of the parents at that school can actually afford to to give their kids lunch, but because they're part of the school, they they don't. Do you then have a system where those you know parents have the option if they want to to donate a bit of money to the school to help pay for that and keep that going, so that if you can and want to and feel inclined to, you can chip in, but in a way that doesn't affect the kids and doesn't affect the way that they're doing it. And and I wonder if that's as it broadens out. If that's because we were, you know, when you're talking about this um, over the water cooler, that's one of the things that you're like, you know, I'd if I went to a school, I'd be happy for my kids to have the provided school lunch, but but in um, you know with two parents working, I'd want to pay for that. So if, if there's some kind of way that parents can chip in to that if they feel that they want to. Mm. I was just thinking it would be probably a good idea, you know, when Benedict was mentioning how they're going to, this, you know, it'll be up to schools to figure out how they'll do it, etc. Some might sort of team up and so on. I was thinking it would be a great idea if, if they sort of, um, you know, got some people that could create employment, say, um, because Marais do, like, catering for huge numbers, right? So you could get some people into the marae and, and that would be their job. They would sort of cook all the big sort of lunches for the schools and then deliver them out to the schools. I mean, you could create jobs that way. It's something that a yeah. lot of um, Māori do it, already. Yeah, and I just think, but when you think about this, when is it going to be the first group of kids that get sick because some ham sandwiches have been left out in the sun or some bottles of milk have been left out and you know what I mean? And then you've suddenly got the government poisoning all these children you know like there's just to me there's so many fascinating things about this scheme um you guys obviously didn't think about that. Just no, me. I was thinking, just you know, me. they could do oh. it in the hospitals, and I know we saw dire situations down in <laughs> South 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 Island hospitals, you know, in recent years with yeah. their uh, poor food in their in their hospitals. But um, you know, if they could do it in the likes of hospitals, I'm sure they could manage a couple of schools. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just imagining the headlines. What about those kids yesterday in your track, though, Benedict, chowing down on pita pit? I thought, jeez, oh, yeah, that's that's a bit expensive. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah. I don't some... think that will be the um, <laughs> the end product of no. the scheme. No, whatever happened to peanut butter sandwiches? 
Yeah. Well, here's a little here's a little segue for you. For they may be serving up water in the lunches as well. And on that note, let's turn to Mikey's story on water rights. The debate on the use of water and who profits from it has just got a lot more complex. They are very tricky issues when you start getting into the areas of money and compensation. But the Waitangi Tribunal says compensation, including royalties for Māori, need to be explored, in particular where hapū and iwi have been shut out. Often when allocation for water does occur, uh, it's a first-in, first-served sort of uh, system. That's led to um, a lot of iwi and hapū Māori organisations not being able to economically develop. That's not to say that we agree with the remedy which is proposed by the Waitangi Tribunal, which is a share of royalties. The New Zealand Māori Council led the Māori water claim in 2012. Today's Stage 2 report finding prejudice and a number of treaty breaches. This report is significant, so the opportunity exists for this current government to not repeat the mistakes of the previous government. Recommendations include a national co-governance body with 50-50 Māori Crown representation, the allocation of water to iwi and hapu on a percentage basis and changes to the Resource Management Act, which is described as entirely inadequate. Some progress has been made, but it falls short of of uh, recognising the rights and interests that iwi and hapu have in water. There's lots of interests to get right here, um, but Maori rights and interests do have to be addressed in order to get a fair outcome for Maori. The government's current focus is on water quality, but it says it will look at water allocation this year. The Waitangi Tribunal also urging co-governance agreements for freshwater bodies in all future treaty settlements as seen with the Waikato River. We have seen the benefit of that for Waikato Tainui but it must be seen across all iwi, across all hapu. I think that's a challenge that we have to find our way through. Just one of the many challenges ahead when it comes to water rights. So this is going to be a very, very interesting issue in the in in the coming months, in the in the coming uh, uh, years even, because that's basically how long it, this thing. I mean, this this claim, this water claim, kicked off back in 2012. I think I was working for Māori Television here at Parliament at the time. I remember covering the issue. It was a big deal across the country. Um, and now we've seen the stage two report come out on that same claim that started all those years ago. Um, interesting though is that next week we're going to see a sort of key document come out from the government on fresh water um, and we'll see whether or not there's anything that addresses some of the issues that have been raised in this report in that um, and then of course we've got the RMA review which is currently underway um, and that's a huge problem when it comes to um, Māori accessing um, and utilising um, water and, 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 and developing it for their own purposes etc. Um, we'll see if that gets um, any sort of pick up in terms of the recommendations in this report Report. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be tracking along, um, and it's always a tricky one for the government. So um, it'll it, be fun. Or would, um, when you're saying the government's going to look later this year, going to start looking at allocation. How do you see that playing out? 
Well, I was actually surprised to hear that from the minister because he's always sort of maintained, you know, oh, actually we're not sort of looking at that issue, we're not looking at any of the issues around ownership or anything to do with that. We're basically at the moment focused on um, water quality. We want to lift the quality of our water across the country, our, our, our pollution, etc. Um, so it was really interesting to hear um, David Parker say that actually they will turn to allocation this year. He doesn't think that they will um, get it sorted before the election, but it is a positive thing that they will be at least starting that conversation, and that's going to be the crucial conversation. I think mm. one of the interesting things with this report, um, and, and I sort of was watching a lot of the sort of media um, 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 uh, pick up on, on all of it, a lot of it was focused on the comments that the tribunal made around the poor um, um, uh, quality of our of our water across the country. That's nothing new, and we all know that. You know, we've got you know polluted water, etc. It's real bad, and it's an issue not only important to Māori but to all New yeah. Zealanders. So I didn't really think that that was a big sort of part of it. I thought actually the allocation. You know, you've got the tribunal saying Māori should get an allocation of water based on um, uh, on a percentage basis. That's huge. You've got um, the tribunal saying that um, you know if um, allocation isn't an option because it's already been over allocated to other um, parties, which is the case in many in many areas. Then you need to look at the issue of compensation and, in particular, royalties. That's always a tricky one, as Andrew Little mentioned. So those are some of the big sort of things, and those are the things that I think that we need to sort of just keep on um, uh, keep on the government. Um, and I guess quite a brave yeah. thing to take on and say that you'll start dealing with it because it's just fraught with so so many issues and so many layers and so many complexities. So it'll be a fascinating one to keep an eye on as they start to work through that for mm. sure. Just how much of a focus will be put on that will be the question because we've always, you know, we've said the thing with the Waitangi Tribunal is they've made recommendation after recommendation and governments have just always been sort of putting it in the too hard basket. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you sort of just got to keep a close eye on and see how they go. Yeah. And this this report was 600 pages. 600 pages. Yeah. And what time did you wake up in the middle of the night to start reading it? The night before you came <laughs> no. to work working? Well, like, I, see, you know, as we know, during pregnancy you wake up and then you can't get back to sleep, so you may as well fill your time with some light reading. Some of us, two o'clock yeah. in the morning, I some think she was uh, poring over this. Others of us read um, reports. Treaty of Waitangi yeah. reports. Yeah. Excellent. Good work there, Mikey. Dedicated journalist. Hey. Anyway, thanks for joining us, guys. This was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. It's available around this time each week on One News Now, and you can check us out on your favourite podcasting app. Yeah.